Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, and chapter 6, and verse 16 to 25. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you, Tomise, and um, once again, welcome. Let me just say, we're, today we are treating the third in a series that we're running between now and um, November, and essentially it's a series that we've titled Based on Our Identity, that is, this name of the series is The Gospel-Centered Urban Church, and we are always trying to reflect, whoever you are in life, you should always reflect as to why do I exist, where am I going, who am I? And as a church, it's important for us to do that, not just for us to come, but for us to know, okay, if I'm committing to this church, this is exactly what we stand for. Now, what we're going to do, we just take each of those words, gospel-centered, urban church. So this month, we are looking gospel, the four Sundays of this month, gospel. And then the next Sundays in October, we're looking at mission, urban, that's where we're going. And then it's a church. So church, we're looking at a community in November. And when I'm talking about gospel, as we look at today, I mean something specific, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But we define gospel as the good news that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Savior, that's Jesus Christ, is now Lord and impending judge of the world. The good news that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is now Lord and impending judge of the world. Now, in our last two sermons, the very first sermon, we saw that that statement, that definition, 
comes out of understanding that the gospel is set in a context, and it's a story. You don't have statements, or statements don't have meaning if there is not a story. And usually, story is comprised of the backstory and the full story, that is, history and your hopes. And that's what gives meaning to our lives. You know, why is this person doing this? Well, this is how he was brought up, but this is where he's going. And usually, you can, you can tell by the story what the statement or the kind of life someone's living. And so the gospel itself, like we just defined, has a backstory in the Old Testament leading up to where Jesus Christ came and died and was risen again and went back uh, into heaven. But it has a false story that hasn't been fulfilled that Jesus is going to return and he's going to recreate this world and will dwell with him and God forever. Now, that was the first one we looked at the gospel story. But last week, we looked at gospel status. And with gospel status, we're basically saying that all of us, is tr we're all trying to be a somebody. We're all trying to have this status that enables us to get you know, open doors or certain blessings. Now, but to get God's own, in one way of looking at it, being a somebody in front of God is to be righteous. Now, how do we get that righteousness? Now, the prevailing view is that you do a lot of good, meet God's standards, and then you become somebody in front of God, in, you know, before God. But that is a fool's errand. You can't do it. You don't even meet your own standards. You don't meet your, well, maybe you meet your standards, but you don't meet your spouse's standards. I know that for sure, right? So that already condemns you if you try to do it that way. But there was another way that God created, and it's the way of faith. Now, by faith, we said this is not wishful thinking. Neither is it believing in, or it's not creative effort, just believe something that comes to pass. It's not wishful thinking. It's based on truth. But at the same time, it requires commitment. It's not simply cerebral knowledge. So the way of faith is the object, truth, and commitment, but it's faith in Jesus' redemptive work. That makes you righteous. So he gives us his own righteousness because Jesus got his righteousness by performance. But he gave us his righteousness. Then on the cross, he bore the consequences of our own inability to fulfill the standards of God. So he gives us a new status. Now, we spoke about justification as the status that makes us, uh, the process that makes us righteous. I was thinking about, um, uh, you know, some of us, there are some of us that are serving now, isn't it? Uh, some people are serving, I know, one or two people, or at least some of us have served. And usually when you serve, they say something like copper, and you do what's copper what? Sean. Sean. Everybody knows Sean. And I often like to say that we have so many Sean blessings in the gospel. So we just spoke about justification, God making us righteous. But by faith also, you are made a child, adoption. By faith, you are made holy, sanctification. By faith, you are made God's possession, redemption. By faith, you are saved from God's wrath, salvation. By faith, you are made God's friend, reconciliation. By faith, you are made free, liberation. All of these things are the status that God gives to us. The process of making it into those things is what we've just said. All of these give us confidence for the final day that we'll serve, that we'll meet with God. So on the one hand, you can't say this, and there was a brand of Christianity that looked at it a long time ago, that, well, there's what I do now. I'm saved by faith. That's it. I'm waiting for Jesus' return. Some people say, I'm waiting to go to heaven. There's little to say about what we do now. Just hold on. Hold on tight. right? Try not to make any mistakes and just wait until heaven. 
Now, in the passage that Tomlinson read to us, we thank God that the gospel has a lot to say about what happens from that, between that time and the time when Christ returns. And if I wanted to give one word, it would be this, freedom. In verse 1, Galatians 5, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The gospel life is all about freedom. Now, in 1995, one of the best movies that came out, still one of the most popular movies ever, I don't know how many of us have seen this film called Braveheart. Right? Why are people looking like, Braveheart was a good food. It was a good movie. Amen. Thank you. Yes. Now, if you remember Braveheart, towards the end of the scene, the Scots had, they had gathered together this ragtag army led by a guy called William Wallace, and they now had this huge, massive English army that they were going to fight. Now, these guys had scored a couple of victories here and there. Amen, Faye. They scored a couple of victories here and there, but now they are faced with this huge, but what are they going to do? So these guys became scared. They became very scared. And then some of them said, they're going to run away. And William Wallace was like, you want to run away? Really? You want to run away? Well, if you run away, you'll leave, but after a while, that thing will haunt you. Are you going to give that away than actually the chance to prove that you are someone forever by dying here? He said, look. You guys are free. You are free. But what will you do with this freedom? And after giving them a rousing speech and everything, he said that they should fight with their freedom. Because they can take away our lives, but they can't take away our freedom. Oh, gosh. Anyway, back to the point is that free people fight. Free people fight. And what we're going to see in our passage here is that if we're going to grow, if we're going to sustain, and if we're going to enjoy in our gospel freedom, it is going to require us to fight, all right? Now, we'll get clearer on that in these three headings, under these three headings, this gospel life. We're going to look at freedom's enemy, freedom's battle, and freedom's war. Freedom's enemy, freedom's battle, and freedom's war. So the first point is freedom's enemy. Now, I don't know if you've ever done something bad in your life, like really bad, right? I'm not talking about guys who steal from their wife's pot, you know, uh, husbands stealing from their wife's pot. I don't see that as bad. I know women see it as very, very terrible. I don't understand that. I'm not talking about that. I'm, sorry, I'm talking about something really bad. And after you've done that, you do take responsibility for your actions, but you also feel like you've been controlled somehow. It wasn't just you somehow. Well. Meet the flesh. In verse 13, it says that you are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In verse 16, we see the flesh again. I will say, I walk in the spirit, and you will not desire, gratify the desires of the flesh. What's the flesh? Well, the flesh is not your physical body. It's not this part of your body that is seen. That's not really what the flesh is. The flesh is this power that generates the impulse to sin. It does it through our body, but in itself, it's somewhat external. The flesh is the power that generates the impulse to sin. And therefore, it's in opposition with another power. That is God's spirit. We see that in verse 17. They in conflict one another. We'll come back to that. Now, we are told we can indulge in the flesh, in verse 13. And the verses, verse 19 tells us, not only can we indulge in it, but we can produce actions that are driven by the flesh. This is... Slavery. 
Now, I was checking a dictionary's um, definition of freedom. It says this, that freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants. The power to write, to, to the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants. Now, if you take that as a definition of freedom, then slavery is basically the opposite, isn't it? Anything that doesn't make me uh, act, speak, or think as I want is slavery. I should be allowed to do anything I want. And when I do anything that I want, I am free. Is that really true? Well, Paul disagrees here. He does disagree because sinning, if you look at verse 16, look at what he says. He says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not do what? Gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying when you sin, you are not just doing what you want. There's something else that is driving you. Not just the flesh, but the desires of the flesh. The desires. Now, the Greek word there is something called epithumia. Can we all say epithumia together? Epithumia. Very, very bad somebody. Epithumia, let me tell you how it works. It's like when we see a car, a very nice car there, ideally it should have four wheels. I say that because I saw a video of a car somewhere that was riding with three wheels. So, you know, you can never assume anything in Nigeria. But ideally, it should have four wheels. And when we see the wheels going, or when you see the car moving, do we assume that it's the wheels that are driving it? No. Now, uh, my son says, Daddy, go faster, faster, faster. And I'm like, OK, don't worry, my son. I'll prove to you I'm your dad. Let's go faster. And I step on the pedal. Is it the pedal that is driving the car faster? Kind of. But actually, there's something more. Something we cannot see. There is an engine that is there. It works with this internal combustion uh, theory that actually produces power that then drives the car. And then the wheels of the bus go around and round. Now, this is what moves it. This is the same way epithemia drives us to act the flesh. You see, the acts of the flesh is one thing, but it is the gratification of the desires. Epithumia is that which drives us, eventually, to act out. In fact, every sin that is committed, every act of the flesh that is produced, at the point, or, or getting towards the point, epithumia basically, it's like a longing. It's a longing for something. And so epithumia replaces, David said that, he longs for the courts of the Lord. Well, epithemia becomes your God at that moment. Becomes the longing, the craving that you have. And when you gratify it, you produce the acts of the flesh. So on the one hand, there is the desire of the flesh produces the acts of the flesh. And if you live your life consistently in the pattern that is characterized by these acts, you have a lifestyle of sin. That's why Paul in verse 21 says, those who live like this, they live like this first because they produce the acts of the flesh. But how did they produce the acts of the flesh? They kept on gratifying the desires of the flesh. And then he gives this warning. And none of us must miss this. Those who live like this, verse 21, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I say this with no apologies for what we said last week. We are saved not by our works. 
We are not saved by what we do. But if you live a life that is characterized by this kind of thing, you prove, the reason why you don't inherit the kingdom of God is you prove that you are not in the kingdom of God. Those who behave like this, a consistent pattern that designs a particular lifestyle that we can identify with, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these acts of flesh, there are 15 that are here. It's not exhaustive. And if we want to be able to just put everything down, because I can't go through all of them, but these 15 are traditionally divided into four parts. And if you're reading the NIV, you'll notice by the semicolons that separate them. So you have the first three, which um, are talking about things that have to do with sensuality. Then the next two, four to five, that is dealing with stuff of paganism. This was the context that these people were coming out of. And then you have eight after that, from six to 13. That is from um, hatred all the way to envy. And those are dealing with issues of relationships. And then finally, you have 14 and 15, which is dealing with issues of indulgence or dissipation, a riotous way of living. But I want to demonstrate, maybe using two or three of them, let me again demonstrate how this epithemia drives and enables these acts. Let's take, for instance, the first one, sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality, I think, needs to be defined. Because most times, if you speak to people, Christians inclusive, what is sexual immorality will say, well, it's sex outside of marriage. That is true, but is not exhaustive enough. What do I mean by sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any bodily act that sexually arouses or responds to sexual arousal performed outside of marriage. Any bodily act that, are, that sexually arouses or responds to sexual arousal performed outside of the confines of marriage. What's marriage? Marriage is the legal committed union between a man, one man and one woman. So any bodily act that sexually arouses or responds to sexual arousal performed outside of marriage. Now, with that definition, sorry, I have to be very explicit and very clear because I find that many times there's a lot of dilly-dallying on this. I didn't believe. But this goes from first base from kissing all the way to conjugal sex. Now, if you say, no, 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 I don't think so. Well, again, let's go back to the definition. Or let me put it this way. In the book of Songs of Solomon, that wonderful, beautiful, nice book, right, that we're never really sure is going on. We're singing, where is she going? Where is her beloved? All of those things. Beautiful. But the book is essentially about the love between a man and a woman, right? Don't get into his Christ and the church. Well, maybe we can connect that somehow. But it is a love relationship. And the love relationship is also set within a context of tension. Love Time hasn't yet come, but I love this person so much. So there's a constant refrain that is going on. Don't awaken love before it's time. You see it in chapter 2, you see it in chapter 3, you see it in chapter 8. Now, but I see there's a tension because this person wants to give the body, but at the same time, they have to pull back. And it's in that same context that you get in 1 verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips. I say, but kisses are not sexual. Excuse me? Let me tell you how epithemia works with this again. In the context of sexual relationship, I have never met anyone who says that when they went into something that they acknowledged was wrong. In fact, sometimes when they're performing the act, they know, you know, and some of you know it, you know this. 
this thing I'm doing is wrong, is wrong, is wrong, is wrong. But it's so wrong that it feels right. <laughs> How can something be so wrong and yet feel right? <laughs> and the point is this. Most times people will say, I knew it was wrong, but at the same time, I could not help myself. Of course you cannot help yourself because you've dr something else is driving you through your members. Epitomia. Calling you to gratify deeds of the flesh. And at that point, what happens is that it relativizes the consequences. You may be a married person and you're doing it. And you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do, I shouldn't do this. But you say, why? I don't know why, but I know it's wrong. I don't know why, I know it's wrong. When you finish the act, you might, my God, my wife, the people I'm mentoring, the people I minister to, God. All of these things come because in that, at that time, epitomia is so overwhelming that it relativizes the consequences. And when the thing happens, you're now filled with so much regret. And you say, well, kissing is not that. I asked someone recently that said, well, kissing wasn't quite sure. I said, okay, when you are kissing this person, was your hand in your pocket? And it wasn't. Obviously, it was not. Why am I saying this? There is no such thing as that. And I'm dead serious about this. I am deadly serious about this. I, I am just beginning to wake up myself to see that some of the things that I knew when I was, I was young and I was growing, I knew it was bad. I liked to engage in it, but I knew it was bad. I'm getting to both see what's going on. We start to relativize the desires of the flesh, and we start to try to make it right, and we try to rationalize it. But those rationalizations is the work of the flesh. And since it is that you cannot stop yourself from doing it, guess what you are? You are not free. It is slavery. I'll give you one more. Fits of rage. Fits of rage there. Now, if that one, you can say, well, it's not really Christians that are doing it. But this one is main Christian. Notice sexual immorality and fits of rage are in the same place. Don't say, I'm just a passionate person. That's me. I'm just passionate. My wife should understand. I'm just passionate. What are fits of rage? Fits of rage are outbursts of uncontrolled anger. When the people who experience this, and I've spoken with some, when you are quarreling and you're saying things, there is only one mindset that you have, is destruction. I don't care what they think. Let him go, let him die. I don't even care if he lives. I've heard women say that about their husbands. I'll leave. I don't care. Let them get out of my house. Those are people that are talking about their siblings. At that point, there's uh, some people, I can it this way. They say, it was like there was a volcano inside of me that just needed to erupt. And at that point, you don't care what's in your sight. You don't care that there are children around you. You are releasing everything. It's much more than just committing the act. You are gratifying something, a volcano that needs to erupt. And so you say everything. At that point, you don't think of the aftermath. Then when you are now trying to reconcile, and I'll be like, but you know I wasn't really serious. Why? Because epithemia is no longer driving you. Your eyes are now clear. It blinds you to seeing the consequences of what you're doing. So this thing brings destruction. I'll have said some stuff about discord, but let's leave that there. My point is this. You are not as free as you think. Something else is driving you. It is slavery, not freedom. 
So consistently living in defiance of Christian sexual ethics, the first one, practicing mixing the power of God and Satan, the second one, constantly working to destroy community rather than build it and live, and then, that's the third one, and living without self-restraint is evidence you've not genuinely believed in the gospel and are not part of God's kingdom. And no matter how free you think you are, you're a slave. Freedom's enemy. Number two, freedom's battle. Well, if that is the flesh, there's someone else we need to meet. Another power, and this is the spirit. The spirit we see here, the spirit, and it says that they're in conflict with one another. We'll get to that. But you see, it says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the of the flesh. So you see constantly this interaction between the spirit and the flesh. Now, let me quickly point out, uh, just step back a bit, a bit of theology. Last week we said that if you are justified, if you are made righteous, if you receive this status, right, if you check in Galatians 3.14, it says you'll get righteousness, but there's something more that comes. This always comes. Anyone who is made righteous, Galatians 3.14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing of Abraham, blessing given to Abraham may come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we may receive what? The promise of the Spirit. So those who are in Christ, who have received Christ by faith, receive the promise. Another way of putting it is that Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not what? Belong to Christ. So they receive it. They have the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. We're all given one spirit to drink. So anyone who genuinely puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when Peter preached about the gospel on the first day of, on the day of Pentecost, they asked, what shall we do? And he says, repent, believe, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So whether it's receiving the gift, baptized, be baptized in the, in the gift of the Spirit, all of those things, if truly you've genuinely put your trust in Christ, the Spirit is also given. Now, this spirit's leading, as we see in verse 18, represents the motivation for the rule in God's kingdom, not the law. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Why? Notice it's about the kingdom. Those who act in this way, that's with the flesh, do not inherit the kingdom. But the spirit is all about the kingdom. In fact, when Jesus rose, ascended into heaven and sat on his throne, the evidence that he was seated on the throne in heaven on earth was that he had poured out the Spirit. That's how we knew the kingdom of God had started. And so from the very beginning, he says he pours out the Spirit. Why? The Spirit gives you new life. John 3 verse 5. Except you are born again, uh, you cannot what? Enter into the kingdom of God. He gives us new life. And then he starts, he puts us in the church, and then he causes us to live in a certain way. It is those who are born into it, are living within it, that inherit it. And it's all done by the Spirit. Now, the proof of those who are born into God's kingdom is contained in what we call the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. Now, notice the fruit, because it's fruit, it doesn't create life. It signifies it. It proves it, right? Have you seen fruit? Mango. Uh, if you go, when is mango season? I've not seen any sweet mango going around. Right? Is it? We're about getting there. Okay. All right. Mango. Have you ever seen a mango tree? Okay. Hands up if you've, if you've 
if you've seen a mango tree before, hands up. Okay, now I want to know who is butter. Hang up if, you, if you've climbed a mango tree. Area, I see you guys. When you see mangoes on a tree, you don't say that the mango itself is the one that creates life in the tree, is it? Mango there on the tree indicates that the tree, what, has life. So the fruit is not the spirit. It's the spirit that gives life. But the fruit is the one that tells us that the spirit is there. Right? So that's what this fruit of the spirit is. Now, there are about nine of them. Let's put on that slide. There are about nine of them, but I'll take you through a couple of, um, um, of this. And I got this from a guy called Tim Keller. It's really, really helpful on thinking about the fruit of the spirit. I just want to go through a couple of them. But you see, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What is love? Well, love is... Is the means to, it, it, it means to serve a person for their good, their own intrinsic value, and not for what that person brings to you. Very important. You serve someone for their own intrinsic value, not what they give to you. If you notice in verse 13, the context of this whole discussion is community. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in what? In love. Now, you make the opposite of love is fear. Because what does fear do? Fear makes you protect yourself. You are scared that somebody is out for you. You are scared that these people want to destroy you. So do you, what do you, you either, if you are the, not, you're not the very confident type, you withdraw. You protect yourself. You withdraw. But if you are the very, very verbose type, you are the one who has power, what do you do? You attack. That shows you that a lot of people who attack. Look, the dictators that we see all around the world, dictators are the most fear-driven people. That's why they use their power to coerce. So you either withdraw or you attack. You're not loving. But there's a counterfeit of that, and that is self-affection. Self-affection basically is you do good things for people so that when they respond to you saying thank you, it makes you feel good. So you're not really loving them. You're using them as a means to gratify your own love. Another one is joy. What is joy? Joy is delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Who God is. Not so much what he can give me, but who God is. Now, the, the absence of that or the opposite of that is hopelessness or despair. A life that is not filled with the majesty of God. What kind of life is that? Nothing to look forward to. But the counterfeit of that is this kind of elation that is based on experiencing blessings and not the blesser. You don't delight in God for who he is. You delight in God for what he can give you. That's not joy. So that what happens is when he's not giving you the thing that you want, you are just all about, you are so angry, you are so moody, you are having swings all and about. All of a sudden, your promotion has come, or you got that contract finally, and isn't God just great? Lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Why? Because you know that your bank balance has just increased. That is in joy. So always look out for the opposite and what the counterfeits are. Let me mention two more. If you see uh, goodness, goodness, another, a better word probably is integrity. In that you are the same person in every situation. Rather than being an actor. You know who an actor? A hypocrite is an actor. That is, you are playing a role. It's not really you. You go out and you like people to identify you for who you are not, really. Usually your family know who you are not. 
They're always mocking when somebody's calling you this great person and all of that. Hush, hush, all right? No, no judging here. Now, but the opposite of uh, the counterfeit of goodness is you say, uh, because, you know, I need to be, it's integrity. I'm a person of integrity, so I just need to say the truth. I have to say it. I have to say it. I don't care how they take it. It really is not that you are trying to be a good person, a person of integrity. You are just trying to get something off your chest. You just learned a new doctrine, and everybody must hear about it. And they must all hear about how terrible they are for not believing the doctrine that you just got to learn. It's not integrity. Because then, when you speak the truth, you speak the truth without love. Very closely related to that is faithfulness. Faithfulness is being utterly reliable. People can depend on you. You are someone of your word. You get to that meeting on time. I'm joking about that, but, you know, sorry. But being utterly reliable. Now, the, 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 the opposite to that is being an opportunist. You know when an opportunist is? Your friend only in good times. People that hang around you when things are going well. You, they flatter you, say all of the wonderful things you want to hear, but they're not really there in the times when, when things are really, really difficult. And what's the counterfeit of that? Well, if the counterfeit of goodness is being truthful and not loving, the counterfeit of faithfulness is being loving but not what? Truthful. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I know she's going, I know it's leading her in a bad direction. I know she, she may get into temptation, but I do want to, if I say that, that may jeopardize our relationship. That's sentimentalism. Love without truth. And so we can look at all of those things if you want. We can send you, as Dami will send you the slide, okay? But that is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, you may be asking the question, how can one grow more in the fruit and commit less of the acts of the flesh? Well, I'm thankful that you answered. Dami, can you take that off? Thank you. That, how can I grow more in the fruit and commit less of the acts of the flesh? I'm thankful that you asked that. How can I be more mature as a Christian? Well, you have to understand, if you're ever going to mature as a Christian, that maturity, Christian maturity, is, has to be seen in terms of a battle. It's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Notice in verse 17, it says, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. Forget it. You never really do fully what you want. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. I believe in free will, but there's no such thing as absolute freedom. The only one that is absolutely free is God. And so it's saying here there's a battle that you're caught up in between this flesh and the spirit. There is a conflict, and Christian maturity is set within this context of this battle. So what do we do? Well, there are two things you should do, crucifixion and, let's see in verse 24, and walking. Let me explain it this way. For instance, let's say you become the president of a nation whose economy is failing. I'm not saying that we are in one, but let's just say. Or you become a CEO, you bring a CEO of a particular company that is failing. How do you revive? How do you turn around these things? Now, let me give you a very, very simple answer. The implementation is not very easy, but this, this is the simple answer. There are just two things you always do. I've been involved in, 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 in turning around the company, and there are two things you do. One is that you stop the bleeding. Two is that you boost the growth. All right? So stop the bleeding basically is if there is corruption and there's inefficiencies, stop it. Look for where there are corruption and inefficiencies, stop, because that's causing bleeding to go out. And then the second thing is that you try to then build on that and grow. Because guess what? If you just say that we're going to fight corruption, 
We're going to fight corruption. We're going to block all the leakages. That will stop you from losing power. It doesn't give you more power. You don't grow. You just stop things from going. So number one without number two is at best going to keep you on the plateau. It doesn't make you grow. But if you try to do number two without number one, every time that you are, all the, all the things that you're trying to implement, they're just wasting away. And so you have oligarchs that are getting a lot of money. And so to turn around things, you stop, you plug, you, you, you cut down all inefficiencies and corruption, stop the bleeding. But at the same time, you have to then invest to enable growth. And that's what Paul is saying here. To grow as Christians, we have to crucify the flesh and its desires and passions, but at the same time, we must do what? Walk with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. So if we want to apply that, let's say, uh, since we, we took uh, sexual immorality, let us, let's apply that to sexual immorality. But notice, first, you are not called to crucify the acts of the flesh. When you try to crucify the acts of the flesh, we have a name for it. It's called legalism. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't. Most children that grow up under households where they say, don't, 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 don't. They are just waiting for a time. You know what it's called? University. <laughs> and then they move from that. This thing that you said I should never go, they go all out. Why? Because you are trying to crucify the acts of the flesh. What does Paul say? Crucify the flesh with what? Its passions and desires. Why? Because we just identified it's epithumia that is driving everything. If you want to stop the act, you go to the source. If you go to a doctor and you're having a terrible headache and you're having fever and it gives you panadol, what happens? The headache goes down after two, three hours, it comes back up. It goes down after two, three hours, it goes back up. And so, if you want to take sexual immorality, right? Stop the things that you do that feed the arousal. Stop trying to argue and say, well, the Bible doesn't say that kissing is not involved. No, stop that. Stop feeding the things that arouse. Cut the gaps. What do you do? For some of us, it means stop watching certain kinds of movies. I'm not giving you a list of, as to what you shouldn't watch. I'm just saying for some of us, certain kinds of movies, certain kinds of series arouses certain things. That puts you in a particular condition. For some of us, please stop sensitive body contact with the person that you like. Because you say, well, at the end of the day, that's not a problem. No, it is arousing something. For some of us, and this used to be on when we used to chat on phone, but now it's now, you know, sexting or some doesn't want to even say sexting. That's even that's even too overt. Do you know what you call suggestive talk? Suggestive. He said, but are you really saying? You, you know? Back in the day, we used to say, you say, uh, maybe I see a guy with a particular girl, and uh, for a while you see them, they hang with each other for a while, you know, and like, well, ah, okay, so you now come and say, um, uh, Moses, are you and Delmo going out? And he says, no, no, no. Are you guys friends? He said, yeah. So what did he say? Uh, we have an understanding. <laughs> Whoever was involved in an understanding. <laughs> May God help you. Basically, it's this. It's, you don't, you're not really, the suggestive talk is, it's not really overtly sexual, but it's not really 
innocent as well. But you hide under the cloud that after all, I didn't say this. Those things I'm telling you guys, you are bringing out there's arousal. So that by the time you continue to live in that cloud over and over again, the devil is a wonderful architect. Mom and dad are not going to be at home one day. Your friends are all going to go to church. You'll be in the same place together. And oops. No, no, no. It's the second time. So after you, know, you repent and all that, then the next one is, oops, I did it again. These things don't just happen like that. So what do you have to do? Stop the bleeding. Go to epithumia. Go down. And say, these things stop me. Why? Because, you see, this is an issue of wisdom. I'm not saying now, if you hang out with somebody in a particular place, that that is a sin itself. I'm saying you may be being foolish. The difference between morality and wisdom. Morality is where we talk about what is right and what is wrong. Wisdom is when we talk about what is wise and what is foolish. Quite often, the Bible tells us in wisdom circles, don't do this and don't do that, because if you do this, you will eventually do what is wrong. So that's why it said, blessed is the man who does not what? Walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, neither does he sit in the way, in the place where sinners take. Uh, uh, sit with, in the place of mockers or scoffers. That's wisdom. The more you hang around, that's where the flesh wants to take you. So if one is crucifying the flesh, the other one is walking with the Spirit. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, but he walks in the Spirit. Why? What does that mean? It means, but he, his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And he meditates upon it day and night. You say, guys, we should be reading our Bibles every single day. You say, that's legalism. And then you are sitting in the counseling board and say, how did you fall into this? I don't even know what was happening. You've been very, very busy, haven't you? You don't have time for anything. I can't, it's not that I don't want to read my Bible. I just, oh, but you evidently had time to be able to, how did this happen? Once you start trying to say, well, I don't do this, I don't do this, I, I, there's no time. This is what the flesh wants to do. You see, the flesh wants to walk you in one path and the spirit wants to walk you in another path. That's why it says, walk with the spirit. Bet you me, if you walk with the spirit, you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. It's a promise. This is what the flesh wants you to do. The flesh wants you, gospel community, I like the way they announce it. But I'm not quite sure, I'll check on that day. The flesh doesn't want you to be there. The flesh doesn't want you to be a Bible study. The flesh doesn't want you to take your devotions. The flesh wants to say, I have been so tired today. I have been so tired. Ha! Huh. I think a new part of Game of Thrones has come. You watch that from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then you wonder why you wake up very late coming to church. I now say, I had a long night. <laughs> this is where the flesh wants you to go. The spirit, on the other hand, wants to keep you in the, in the Bible, in the Word of God, day and night. If you crucify the works of the flesh, uh, crucify the, the flesh and its desires and its passions, and then you do what? Walk in the spirit. Because, see, walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit, is not sitting down and spontaneously waiting for whatever the spirit tells me. We've said that thing for so long, it is absolutely disastrous. Because guess what? Spontaneously, most times, it's the flesh that is telling you something. Walking in the spirit is saying, here are the wise 
mechanisms and disciplines that God has given us through his word, and the spirit, as we follow, energizes those things. As we keep those disciplines, we find life. We draw life from the spirit so that we will not. What's freedom? Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is the ability to flourish under the right restrictions. There's no such thing as life without restrictions. Is, do I, are these restrictions good so that I can flourish under them? Or are these ones bad? Take, for example, if you say I want the right to do anything I want. Okay, let's apply that to the roads here in Lagos, right? I want the right. Nobody should tell me what I want to do. So please, can we get rid of all traffic lights and all LASMA uh, people? So that I can drive anywhere I want. Do you know what's going to happen then? You will be brought into a reality of slavery. It's called traffic jams. Because if we take out right restrictions, we fall into slavery. Freedom, there's a difference between freedom from. Freedom from is being coming under the wrong restrictions. But you come, that's deliverance. You come out of that so that you can go to freedom to. Freedom to is the goal of freedom from. You are delivered from this so that you could be who God wants you to be. You are delivered from the yoke of slavery of sin so that now you can live righteously. So what is freedom? Freedom is the ability for us to come under sin, out of sins, slavery, and walk in the Spirit. Because only under the Spirit's law will you flourish. I spent so much time on that, but let me quickly, if I, I, should, I should be ending now. But let me quickly, you, let me just say this on this last point. It doesn't happen in a day. Two things, traits about fruits that we know is that Fruits don't just pop up, right? I hate unripe fruits. My wife will tell you, I love plantain. No, plantain is not fruit, is it? It's kind of in between. Okay, bananas. I don't like all those green bananas. I don't know how you people eat them. Banana chips and all those things that are so unripe. It's not good. The goal is for them to be ripe, <laughs> right? They should be ripe, all right? So it's gradual. Don't, now, as I've said, the lifestyle characterized by the works of the flesh is bad. I am not saying that anybody produces the works of, the, of this, uh, the fruit of the Spirit 100% immediately. That's not what I've said. It is fruit, and therefore, it's gradual. But as I say it's gradual, guess what? It's inevitable. It will happen. If you have the Spirit, it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Final one, freedom's war. Freedom's war. How do I fight this battle? I'm going to skip this, but it's not just effort and discipline. It's not just effort and discipline. I won't do this. I won't do that. When you talk about me, I won't do it. You're putting yourself at the center. If you do it successfully, guess what's going to happen? You'll look down on people who don't do it successfully. So you are at the center of achieving these things. That's a problem. That's not how we fight. We must have our effort and discipline applied from a different perspective and just share will. Notice. It doesn't say, and Paul could have easily said this in verse 24, it doesn't say, behead the flesh and its passions and desires. Neither does it say, shoot it down or spare it. It uses a particular word. What does it say? Crucify it. Crucify. Why does Paul use this particular term here? Now, remember, in Braveheart, I said, William Wallace says, those who are called to fight, is it slaves? Did he say, slaves, fight for your freedom? He said, you are free, men, so do what? Fight. Who are those that are called to crucify the flesh with its passion and desires? Those who do what? Belong to Christ. Who are those who belong to Christ? First one again, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from. Freedom from. 
Those who belong to Christ are those who Christ has delivered from the consequences of sin and death and Satan. And then he calls them to crucify. It's predicated on the cross of Christ. Because he was crucified, he can tell us to crucify. But secondly, because he is risen, he shows us the pattern, the the new man, the new truly free man in his perfection. That is what Jesus Christ did. He demonstrated and proved that he truly was victorious, but he showed us what the new man of freedom looks like, and then he ascends and pours out his spirit based on his resurrection, pours out his spirit so that we can now live in the power of the new man. You are not just called to fight for your freedom. Let me put it this way. In 1945, June 6, 1945, 150,000 Soldiers were dropped at the port of Normandy. It was the largest scale military, whether it's on uh, uh, land, sea, or air, largest scale military operation ever in the world. It has never been repeated again. 150,000 people dropped at the beach of Normandy in France, but then it was occupied by the Nazi Germans. That day, anybody who was worth their salt knew that the Second World War was what? Over. It was called D-Day. 150,000. In Nigerian colloquial terms, Hitler could have just said, Edom B. Now, when they came in, now some of them still died. 4,000 of them died. 6,000 of them were injured. But they set a lot of the French people free. And after that, there were still more battles. In fact, victory in Europe, what we call VE Day, when the war was declared over. Do you know when that was? May 7, 1945, 11 months after. But on D-Day, everybody knew that the war was over. When Jesus died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. But when he comes again, the Bible says that he's going to say it is done. It is finished is our D-Day, and it is done is our V-Day. There is a distance between V-Day and a D-Day and V-Day. But those who have been redeemed, who are free, because of D-Day, now fight from victory and not for victory. We engage in our spiritual battles daily not to obtain victory. We fight from the victory. We fight in the battles because the war has been won. And this is what gospel-centered living is. If you want to know how to do that, then in one, for instance, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 tells you how to flee. It says flee sexual immorality. But it doesn't just say don't, don't, don't because you are going to be attached to somebody else. It says one more thing. It says don't you know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit that lives in you? You were bought with a price. It doesn't motivate us only from the negative standpoint. It motivates us from what God has done for us in Christ. This is what gospel-centered life is all about. We don't leave the gospel behind as though that's the only thing I've gotten in now and let me get more principles. We keep using the gospel to motivate us. We fight not for our victory. We fight from our victory. And it's on that basis we are no longer slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to fear, slaves to anything like that. We are no longer slaves, but we are now free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit 
www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.